My name is Matthew Libatique, ASC, and you are listening to the Cinematography Podcast, the one and only. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. It is time for another episode of the Cinematography Podcast. Wow, you said that with such gravitas. Hey, how's it going? It's going all right. How about you? Uh, my flight out of Ohio was canceled. Still freezing my tits off here in Dayton, Ohio. <laughs> well, it was that cyclone snowmageddon bomb. Bomb, bomb cyclone. Yeah, it was. It was. That was. I've one. honestly, I've never experienced temperatures this low in my entire life. I was outdoors and it was negative eight degrees. Yikes! Yeah, Yikes. I'm sure that some of our listeners in Sweden or something will be like, oh. Oh, go get fucked. But honestly, I just don't understand why anyone would live in a climate that ever got that cold. Like I, I, it was in the two weeks preceding, it was in the low forties in Los Angeles. And I was like, screw this. Uh, I'm in Portland right now. And it, it, it was sleeting here. I'd never experienced sleet in my, my entire life. Sleet was a new thing for me. That was, uh, I've experienced, I, I, I experienced sleet in Florida. I, I can't recommend it. I can't recommend no, it in, no. in Florida no, or anywhere. Good. Yeah. There were always like uh, car sales with cars that had been hailed on. Anyway, we're not here to talk about weather. We're here to talk about who is on the show today. Uh, it, it's a returning friend of the show. It was so much fun to talk to him again. Uh, Maddie Libatique. I'm always excited to talk to Maddie. I think he's uh, one of the most interesting and innovative uh, voices out there in cinematography. Has been since 97, I guess, when Pi came out. And he's got two movies you can see right now. And we talked to him about both of them. So but that's great. Pretty sweet. And uh, The Whale is probably going to be up for uh, pretty much every Oscar, including one for him, I hope. And uh, Don't worry, darling. Know. Yeah. And Don't Worry Darling, which is just a gorgeous, gorgeous film to look at. I know it, it got like mired in weird controversy and uh, didn't deserve it. I think it's a really cool movie and people should see it. Uh, I think it was The New Yorker gave it a like best movie of the year type of review, too. So it's it's definitely a polarizing movie, but some people out there have really responded to it in a big way. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I also thought Maddie's work in it was, as always, Outst just like gorgeous, amazing work. So, Ilya, I have a weird topic that I want to talk to you about today for our close focus. All right. Let's dive into your weird topic. Well, for the time being, I'm still on Twitter. Mm. As much as Elon Musk makes me want to uh, burn my Twitter account to the ground, I feel like I've made actual friends on Twitter. I use it to promote my stuff. I use it to promote other people's stuff. I think Twitter's awesome. Uh, not crazy about Elon Musk's uh you got stewardship a blue, thereof you got a blue check mark next to your name right you're one of those i i do have a blue check mark and i have an if you click on it it says uh it's a legacy blue check mark which means that i may or may not be of significance so thanks <laughs> thanks elon for that but i noticed twitter uh lighting up with a word i'd never encountered before and that was or a term nepo babies i think it was trending and I was like, what the hell is a Nepo baby? You know, and, and I feel like ending anything with like uh, an O, it's not like Groucho Chico anymore. It's like pedo Nepo. It's it's <laughs> it, it whatever whatever Nepo babies are, uh, they can't be a good thing. Can't and, be a good uh, thing. You it, don't want to stay away from those Nepo babies. <laughs> and it, it traces, I believe, 
to a New York Magazine article, and I'm going to put it in the clearest terms I can put it in. It's somebody working in the entertainment business whose parents worked in the entertainment business. Can you imagine that ever happening? Dun, dun, dun. I know. <laughs> and uh, uh, But it's like an all but definitive guide to the Hollywood Nepoverse. And one of the people who, who's like shown clearer as day up there is Jaden Smith. And I'm like, Jaden Smith isn't really doing movies or anything anymore. And they only have six of them. And five of them appear to be people who are working in the entertainment business. And Jaden Smith is, uh, as far as I know, a guy who's super weird on social media and is richer than I will ever understand wealth to be. Uh, I'm going to come off uh, slightly glib here. <laughs> this is not a news story. There is nothing like I'm sorry that the ink was spilled in New York Magazine and Vulture Magazine and people on Twitter have gotten up in arms about nepotism in Hollywood. But this is not a newsflash. This is not a story. In fact, you should be so lucky to take advantage of nepotism if you can in the entertainment industry, because there is almost nothing that anyone can do to actually have a successful career in Hollywood, especially if you are not talented. If you are talented, that nepotism might kick open the door for you, but it's still on you. The days of Marion Davies being put up in front of people in sort of like a, a clear show of nepotism, regardless of talent or, or lack of talent, those days are long gone. You cannot get a career and be talentless. You have to have some level of talent. And granted, in Hollywood, just being attractive can be a talent. There are people who- That you know, can that, be a talent, that, for that, sure. That can 100% sure, yeah. be a talent. But if someone can kick open the door for you, you still got to make it, though. You still actually got to work. And uh, I would argue they're trying to diminish their worth by calling them a Nepo baby, which is just, I'm sorry, that's just, that sounds like bullshit to me. But anyone on that list who's actually working, I'm guessing, going to say is talented and doing good work. And I can yeah. imagine they're probably bringing up like- Bruce Willis and Demi Moore's kids, whose name escaped me at the at the moment. Rumor, rumor, Willis is yeah. uh, is is one of the ones on the list. They're like regularly guest stars on network TV shows and one season twenty of Dancing with the Stars. Okay, well, you win Dancing with the Stars because you're a celebrity, not because you're a great actor. Don't care. And then they, you know, they bring up people like Colin Hanks. You know, they Colin they, Hanks they bring is great. Up a, oh my God, he's, they bring up a lot so of these good. people. And I think that some kerfuffle was created when uh, Destry Spielberg made a short film by Owen King, who is Stephen King's son, and uh, starred Sean Penn's son, Hopper Penn. And it's like, these are people that she grew up with. Like, I mean, what do you expect? Like, look, I wish I had the opportunities to direct that she has. But I don't because Steven Spielberg isn't my dad. But who gives a crap? Like everyone's lot in life is different. If her work speaks for itself, she'll get to keep working because she's Steven Spielberg's daughter. Maybe she gets an extra spin that the average person wouldn't get. Who cares? And uh, all a hundred percent of her peers are going to be the children of friggin' celebrities. That's that's, that's who she grew goes. up with. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, hey, I got to say, I've been loving Jack Quaid and the boys. It makes zero difference to me at all that he's, you know, Dennis Quaid's kid. It's like Jack Quaid yeah. is so great in that. And why would the term Nepo baby be applied to uh, like, I mean, are they going to talk about George Clooney? George Clooney is, you know, and I understand sure. that he had a hustle like really, really hard to, to you know, it was, it, it was not like <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis. Jamie Lee Curtis kind of pushed back about it. Yeah. And, you know, she's obviously the daughter of Janet Lee and Tony Curtis. Mm -hmm. But Jamie Lee Curtis has been a major, major star basically my entire life. She's freaking amazing. 
And, you know, imagine, if you will, that the children of outrageously attractive people are going to be attractive and some percentage of them, and I'm betting it's probably under 5%, decide to go into the same career their parents went into or a similar career. Like, oh, so you're not you're not going to be an actor, but you're going to be a singer. Uh, you know, we can't ignore the Coppola clan. The Coppola clan has got so many talented people. I mean, oh my like, God. like Sophia, Nicolas Cage, yeah, Nicolas Cage, a perfect example. Nicolas Cage is going to make another appearance in my, in my short end this, to, this week as well too. But, oh, but you know, sweet. like Sophia Coppola, a lot of like incredible people who have come out of that family, they should all immediately like turn up their nose and say like, I can't possibly do this because I had a famous relative who was very successful. No, you might think that, that well, uh, and they Nicolas Cage is an interesting case too, because he changed his name he did. so that he he wouldn't get hired because he was a Coppola. His name is Nicholas Coppola. That's 100% true. You know, what I think is really interesting, though, is that a lot of people follow in the footsteps of their parents and go into, you know, the family business. And if it was uh, running a bakery or something like that, no one would bother to write an article. But because it's the yeah. entertainment industry. Oh, yes. You know, we got we got to we got to throw some shade on the entertainment industry. But, you know, let me just say that if you were going into the same business that your parents were in, you were probably getting a. Uh, tutored along the way in such at such a high level that many people out there would never get. And the fact that you are second generation or third generation, that actually means the bar is higher for you because you come from all this potential knowledge that could have been bestowed upon you. So I think that it's wonderful that there are people who grow up in this industry because I got to say that when I've worked on set with many of them, and this is includes people who are like working, uh, you know, below the line, behind the scenes, those are some of the, you know, most disciplined and best trained people ever. Now, there's always exceptions to this. Uh, I don't want to bring up some very public notable exceptions right now, but uh, besides Polly Shore, I'm sorry. Uh, I know I was, I was, I was going to, I was going to bring up Rust with the armor who was second generation, oh, yeah. but it's like, no, really what I wanted to do is say that, that so many people, because they grew up around that and they learn the discipline and the etiquette and the stuff from such an early age, it becomes second nature and they are not only uh, deserving their posts, they're, they're often some of the best people doing those jobs, which I think is great. I know, just like going through this list, some of these people, I'm like Angelica Houston, Gwyneth Paltrow, Liza Minnelli, oh, come uh, on. Emilio Estevez. This is ridiculous. Nor- yeah. Nora Jones, Angelina Jolie, Jane Fonda, Michael Douglas, Ben Stiller. Some of these people are just the most notable entertainers of their generation. And uh, it's a non-story to me. It's, it's a just no- a non-story. It, yeah, it's, it's a waste. We, we, we have spent too much time talking about it already. Let's get to the interview with Maddie Libatique. Here it is. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So we're here with returning champion Maddie Libatique. For those who forgot how excited I am to talk to Maddie every time, uh, there is exactly one movie poster hanging in my house, and it's like a, an eight-foot-tall poster of Pi, one of my all-time favorite movies. And your work just continues to, to blow our minds. So thank you for coming back. It's a pleasure to be back. Thanks, guys. So uh, we kind of have two things to talk about. We were supposed to talk a few months ago about Don't Worry, Darling. And then, of course, The Whale, which is at the top of everybody's Oscar watch list for all nominations. I'm I'm crossing my fingers, including you. But let's talk about Don't Worry, Darling first, because it came out a little bit earlier. Just an amazingly gorgeous film with a look that was kind of a fresh spin on a look that we've seen before, but like a a really unique kind of, I don't know, what would you call it? Like mid-century, modern, better homes. Like what were the guiding principles of the look of uh, Don't Worry, Darling? The guiding principles are really the imagery that 
Olivia Wilde put together as inspiration. I mean, uh, there's all the photographs of these candid photographs that she had cobbled together from uh, Rat Pack era, Vegas and Palm Springs and sort of this sense of debauchery and excess Mm -hmm. was kind of the guiding principles. Uh, So that's informed design and informed costumes, informed cinematography ultimately. Yeah, I I could totally see that. And I have to say that like the movie went into places I did not expect, including I would say almost a Lynchian place. There's like a scene where a character is being compelled to dance on stage for an extended period of time that felt right out of a David Lynch kind of a movie. Like it would have you could have put that into Mulholland Drive. Well, I absolutely love that you you draw reference to uh, the David Lynch film when you talk about that scene, because it is quite uncomfortable to watch and was uncomfortable to shoot from uh, watching the performer have to be manipulated that way, almost marionetted, doing barrel dances on a stage in front of a would-be fascist crowd. You know, so but it it is interesting. It's like, you know, Olivia has a lot of different references and influences, Mm -hmm. you know, and she's able to weave them together. The thing she's interested in as a filmmaker and the sense of like, patriarchy and you know all these themes that she put in she was uh trying to layer into this film but while at the same time trying to create a almost 80s early 90s style thriller was fun to, to attempt yeah there's a, i never thought about it as an 80 early 90s thing but as soon as you said that i was like oh yeah there's kind of like a breakdown vibe the kurt russell movie right well she also also referenced um devil's advocate oh yeah yeah tone wise was a big reference for her and um Obviously, there's the comparisons that Stepford Wives just story-wise and thematically, but tone-wise, it was just like this, I wouldn't say quite Angel Heart, but that vibe, that sexiness, that sort of mm. um, Adrian Line type sexiness, you know, just sort of that bringing that back to an enjoyable movie experience. So when you're given these kinds of photographs, and I don't actually know where you filmed the movie, but like, what's your process for recreating this, the, the vibe, the style of a look of these kinds of very striking images? You know, to be honest with you, I wasn't trying to do too much. I think, you know, when I got onto the project, the design was well on its way. Mm-hmm. Costumes is well on its way. So production designer Katie Byer and, I, you know, meeting with her initially, there was a lot of, you know, the mid-century thing was, and the house was already pretty designed. It was designed. Um, we made some augmentations based on, you know, our stage size and some of the lighting needs. But uh, the design was there and something, you know, and it was something Olivia was after and signed off on. The costumes as well, working with um, Ariane Phillips, you know, all the colors were there. It was, yeah. then it was about trying to figure out in terms of the LUT lookup table, what I was going to do with the colors to retain what she was after and what Olivia was after, but still have the ability to give it a little boost. So we, we, um, there was so much design because of those two elements already. And then the cast being the cast, I actually tried to not do too much. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it was just. And our setting, and I have to give a lot of credit to our locations and our production designer in terms of putting us in Palm Springs and setting us up to succeed visually, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, I give a lot of credit to that as well as the design of the house, which was stunning. And then just using sort of the real, you know, there was the exterior of the house was a real location in Palm Springs, but the interior obviously was on stage. But using the November or December light in Palm Springs, the low hanging sun, was perfect motivation to lighting the set on stage. What about uh, lenses? Was there any research that went into kind of the lenses that those that those photographs were taken with? Or, what, you know, was it just kind of a visual, like looking at it and saying, ah, it's kind of like this, or making it completely your own? What, what was the process there? You know, I, I was, um, I do a lot of commercials in between features. So I try different lenses all the time. And 
you know, the, the large sensor we shot with the mini LF and with the large sensor, you know, there's only maybe four options really for me. And I didn't want to go too sharp because the design was so shiny to begin with that I, yeah. um, I wanted something that could have a bit of aberration, something that could have a little bit of a vibe if I panned into the sun. And it was, uh, I sort of landed on the black wings as a main set of lenses. And then, um, I used the Sigma classics for portions of the desert where I wanted to feel uh, a little more hazy and sort of, uh, atmospheric. But yeah, I mean, I did about three tests, two simple ones at the camera at the rental house, Camtech. Once I was able to gather, you know, when the crew was, my keys were involved and we were at that point in prep, I was able to gather color swatches from wardrobe and I was able to fold everything into lens tests at that point, you know, looking at uh, lights, primes and uh, Zysocremes, black wings and anything that would cover the sensor we ended up opting for the, uh, the black wings. And um, I had worked with the Sigma Classics and I knew that they were so low contrast, so, so uncoated in feel that I, I knew that even on an overcast sky that was kind of hot, and if I gave it a little extra exposure, it would, it would create a, this atmospheric feeling I was after, specifically when Alice, the main character, is walking through the desert for the first time. Mm. Yeah, they're very low con for sure. And uh, do you feel like it's almost like a like a weak fog filter when the light strikes that when you get a flare from that? Is that sort of the atmosphere that you're that you're talking about? You know, the, the art of filtration, I think, has been lost because we forgot about those things. Um, the double fog, actually. And I don't know if I could equate it to that. There's a vibe to them that also, if I did get hard sun, that wouldn't occur on a double fog filter, which is the insane flaring that happened. It's yeah. almost like a multiplicity of flares. That happens on these lenses that um, I thought I could, I could take advantage of if it came up. It didn't really come up in the film. In the places that I thought it would be cool, I think the lens itself was too low con for those moments. There's one scene in the film where I'm using a, uh, a BB light because I just wanted to have this sort of symbol out in the middle of the desert. It's basically a BB light with a cross symbol. I just turned on the lights. I did not, I think, four or five lights to create a symbol. And I was hoping to get a little bit of flair from that. I kept focusing it towards the lens, kept focusing towards the lens. I just couldn't get it out of it. That's, that's fun. I, we should do like a whole episode at some point about lens flare and, and lenses, because I feel like, especially the modern lenses, there's like such a distinctive way that they flare and you see it in, in movies all the time. And, and I feel like it's something that has become a stronger aesthetic choice. I remember working with somebody once who didn't like shooting on the red camera because the lens flares were too pink. This is an older red that had everything to do with the IR filter and nothing exactly. to do with the lenses. Yeah, no, no, that's exactly no. You're saying it had to do with the sensor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lens flare. I I remember back in the days when I was a camera assistant, I I worked with one particular DP, and he would keep this old Cook twenty one to one hundred because it just came out for the flare shots. And it was like, all right, we got a flare shot. Put on the twenty to one hundred, which is this you know the fifty year old lens just so you could get the repeating reflection of light through all those elements. Matt, do you ever do anything like that? Carry a lens just for like the flare or carry the lens for that special like close-up effect? Well, that, that lens. Oh yeah, that <laughs> one. Oh really? Oh yeah, the same thing. That exact <laughs> one. Get specific lens. I mean, uh, uh, on A Star is Born, I had a shot with a motorcycle and I knew I mean, the whole time I was like, I'm only going to shoot it with, I'm in a camera car, I'm just going to put that 20 to 100 on it and I'm going to shoot. Whatever I can get with that lens is what we're going to get for the scene because I knew the sun was, you know, the sun was going to be in a certain place. I was like, okay, we're going to exploit this. I finally find a place in the film that I could use that multiplicity. Yeah, it's really cool. 
Well, what, what, like, what about a specific shot would make you want to go for that look? I mean, I understand that, like, there's the opportunity of we've got a great sun in in exactly the right spot, but like, what would aesthetically make you say, like, I need flair on this shot? I, I assume you got to underline the story somehow, though. It's like you can't overuse that thing. It's got to be like, you know, it's got to be a spice. It can't be the whole dish, so to speak. You know, I remember um, Visions of Light, and Starr was talking about color. You know, green is green is knowledge. You know, in film school, everybody's like, green is knowledge, green is knowledge. We all talk about green is knowledge. Well, when you come to a technique like a flare, you just, okay. Sometimes you sneak it in because you're trying to make a uh, thematic punctuation. You know what I mean? Maybe you're, uh, you set up the camera on a dolly and you know the sun is just over the house and you don't, you boom up, boom up, boom up until boom, you hit, get hit by a flare and then you force a cut. Or like in A Star is Born where we get that flare, it was this moment where these two people are just, they're really connecting. You know, and they're having this idyllic moment. They're together on a motorcycle in the middle of the desert. What could be more connected than that? And it's just like this magical thing. Mm -hmm. Like they're blessed by, they're blessed by the powers that be. So I, you know, it's different things. Sometimes it's very small and it's just a punctuation. Sometimes it's just, it it just sort of mimics the tone of the scene and what the scene means in terms of the relationship between the two people or its point in the arc of the narrative. Now, that's interesting. And and to uh, ham-fistedly segue into The Whale, there are some great moments where you use lens flare or have light coming straight at us. It's such a brilliantly designed movie. And the first thing that struck me was that y'all went with a more square aspect ratio. I assume it was four by three. I don't know what the actual aspect ratio was. Four by three. You know, the reason why we did that, we we had spent uh, the majority of our prep, which was not long. I think I had maybe three weeks. Oh, really? Majority. Yeah, I mean, I, I was coming off of Don't Worry Darling and literally landed, I mean, finished Don't Worry Darling and then got on a plane to go to start prepping the whale. And it was just being in rehearsals and sort of seeing where Charlie, our main character, would sit primarily on this couch and then having sort of these characters come in like satellites rotating around the sun. We real, we soon realized that, you know, if we were going to do an over, a camera would have to be so low to hold him down low in the frame and then somebody vertically standing before him. So Darren decided, why don't we try? And we started to explore just framing for weather three or three. And that, that solved the problem. You know, we could hold the verticality was able to uh, allowed us to be able to hold him in the foreground and whether it be Ellie or uh, Liz or Thomas, we could see them also in the frame. But plus there's no, you know, the added value is like we're in the same apartment for whatever, 90% of the film, there's not a lot to see left and right. (laughs) (laughs) No, that that figured. And I I noticed with a lot of your camera movement, like it's interesting that you would say that people were like a satellite around him because I noticed that a lot of times you were kind of holding him in the frame and pivoting around him as people would walk from one place to the other. Instead of like following that person, you would kind of almost lock him in the center and kind of pivot around him. Yeah, I mean, that was Darren's, Darren and I... um, you know, obviously we're taking a piece of theater, trying to translate it into screen language and cinema, you know, and Darren walking around the rehearsals, walking around the rehearsals, you know, of course he was letting the actors sort of go through their lines and then exploring character. But then he was also, <laughs> at the same time, he's walking around trying to figure out how to block it so that the camera wasn't stationary. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and challenge us basically it's to move the camera around this small space so that it didn't become stat. And he knew that, um, and it, it falls right into his wheelhouse. You know, there's a sense of, um, he's telling you the story through his cuts. <laughs> you know, yeah. he's telling, it's not, it's not like it's an objective thing where you can look at a presidium 
and then scan the fray for what you want to see when people speak. He's all about telling you what he, everything is methodical, whether you're seeing somebody say the line or hearing that line off screen, uh, his cover schemes are designed for that. And what he did was interesting is um, because we had no normal location changes that sort of signify one scene to another, you have these long stretches within one day of the film where one thing happens and another scene happens and another scene happens. And if you watch the film, they're kind of marked by a wide, mm-hmm. you know, and, and a change in blocking. If somebody becomes static, somebody gets up and moves. Even Charlie will get up and move, you know, or he'll, when we mobilized him through the wheelchair, he would, so Darren kept actors mm-hmm. moving in a real, very real way, ultimately with, a, with the uh, intention that, hey, we got to move the camera as well. And these actors are making us, the performers and the characters are making us move the camera. And our hope was it would cease to be as static as a play. Had you, uh, had you seen it performed as a play? I saw video of it. I didn't see it live. It'd be interesting. To, like, I, I haven't seen the play, so this is my first uh, experience of it. But when you see a, a play being turned into a movie, like the first thing is, let's open it up. You know, let's have a scene on Main Street. Let's whatever. But it's such an interior story that all takes place basically inside this one uh, apartment. Were there overall, I mean, I know that you said that Darren had like watched rehearsals and was trying to figure out how to block it or how to how to keep it moving. But was there like an overall arc to the way that you used camera movement, lensing and any of that stuff, movement or lack thereof? I mean, it was really the camera movement um, sort of getting us from one scene to another. You know, the film is broken up naturally within days. So it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Yeah. We sort of, talked about and created a language of light whereby, you know, when we meet this character, it's a very dark and stormy day. And um, that's Monday when we go into the evening and it's still raining when he goes to bed, takes his shirt off and then um, sort of the um, Moby Dick inspired, hang, you know, moving light, and the whole language of this rain that happens. Uh, I mean, you have Tuesday and Wednesday, which are overcast days and they give me an opportunity to sort of use a softer light and then have more, dominance yeah. from interior light to exterior light. And I, I didn't have a lot of windows to play with, <laughs> but um, I tried to use the windows as a light source as I could to sort of signify those changes in tone and mood, all building up to the the Friday where he has his uh, moment with his daughter. Mm. The entire movement of the light was basically built to that from beginning to end. It's really effective. I mean, I, I think that by the time you get to that too, it really makes you realize how long you've been in the dark, how long you've been inside, how claustrophobic you've been. That last sort of like moment of release and there's some some natural light that's spilling in or, or what was presented to be natural light. Uh, it, it, it it feels almost cathartic. It feels like, aha, here's this moment. And uh, yeah, I, I thought it was super effective. Um, yeah, it was beautiful. I appreciate I, that. I got a question, uh, too, because, you know, so much of the movie is Charlie and Liz, Charlie and Liz, Charlie and Liz. And I noticed that you're almost never head up camera height, like looking Charlie straight in the eye. It, it, it happens. But there's a lot of like you're down low and you're, you're up high and you've kind of got these two sort of like dueling perspectives. When figuring out the composition, are you thinking a very sort of like traditional, the the traditional someone in power, someone not in power, someone in power, someone not in power, uh, or is it something else? How, how do you come about your uh, composition for this? Well, I mean, I would say Darren, you know, there it's a lot of assets to Darren and Darren, Darren's a big believer in eyeline and, and, and connecting to the character through the eyes. And um, first and foremost, the camera is basically placed 
uh, if somebody's standing over Charlie, if, if it's Liz standing over Charlie and we're shooting Charlie, then it was going to be kind of, the camera's kind of in line with where he'd be looking. Mm. And the same goes for if we're looking at Liz off of Charlie, mm. the camera would be lower because he wants where the actor is looking to be in line with the center of the lens um, as okay. much as possible. That's where he builds towards when he's crafting performance with an actor. Uh, can we talk a little bit about the lenses that you uh, that you relied on as well in the way? I mean, again, you're you're mostly in this not very big apartment. My brain immediately goes, well, you probably had to go kind of wide, but I, I'm just curious where you landed. We use the uh, Ingenue Optimal Primes. Mm -hmm. I um, I work out of a, a camera house in New York called TCS, and um, Oliver there introduced me to these uh, the set, which I had never seen before. I was didn't know exactly where to land. It was the first film I've ever shot on the Sony Venice. So I had a, a bit of a challenge because I wanted, Darren, I wanted to use Daron and Gimbal specifically for the sort of the COVID aspects of things, trying to keep, as you, you know, just keep the head on our, the camera on a remote, trying to keep people away from the actors who are unmasked. And um, we had the challenge of, you know, to, as you might know, you know, the Sony Venice doesn't balance that well on the, on the Ronin. So that was a bit of a challenge. So I had to, I had to find a lens that was going to perform the way I wanted to perform for the film, but yet I needed something that wasn't going to be so big that I wasn't going to be able to use a Ronin. So these ended up doing the trick. And I liked about them is that they, they had a sharpness to them, but they weren't like too contrasty, you know? And um, I wanted the film to be soft. I mean, I also, I also added use of a, a, what I call the color con out of Camtech. It's a LED tray, basically a four by five tr filter tray with LEDs embedded inside of it, that if you put a piece of filtration in, like say a uh, glimmer glass, it sort of flashes the file. Um, oh. So I, that in combination, you know, between the Optimal Primes, the 2500 ISO, the ColorCon, and our use of live grade sort of created the look of the, the cocktail that created the look of the soap. Yeah, it's a fun look. And uh, I wouldn't have guessed it was the the Sony Venice. But when you tell me that it's live grain, of course, yeah, live grain, that's, uh, you know, that's sort of the magical Sonny Bear secret sauce that, uh, you know, creates some uh, film effect on there that uh, that's really stunning. And I got to say that, yeah, those those ingenues, it's almost like you can get seven lenses in one if you get the different filters, the different internal piece for, for each yeah. one of them. So, so yeah, it's a cool look. I, I really enjoyed that. I like how they performed out of the box, but I know that they're so they're capable of so many things. So it'd be fun to do a deep dive on those lenses and see what you can get out of them. Um, in terms of lighting the interiors, you know, because obviously you've got, you know, you, the exterior lighting sources you were talking about. It's a very performance driven movie. And there's always that question on a movie like this where it's just about emotionality and stuff like that and how much technical stuff to ask of the actors. Granted, Brendan Fraser is mostly seated in one place throughout the whole movie. But did you come up with a lighting scheme that was more about, like, were they able to have a lot of freedom within the basic area they were? I'm, I'm always curious on something like this where it's, like, so heavy and emotional. If it's like, ah, you also got to hit that mark. You know, like, is that one more thing that you have to ask of the actors? Or is that something that you consider when you're coming up with your lighting plot? I mean, I, I almost consider it the entire time, or every film. You know, if there's a mark, I try to give uh, some space around that mark, mm -hmm. you know, as much as I can. I try to light broadly. I love naturalistic looking film, but strikingly beautiful ones as well, you know? And yeah. I think there's a, there's a thing that I strive for when lighting a film and maximizing the reality of the space for the actor to perform and become that character. And I think that this film was, it was extremely important 
my goal was to try to treat as naturalistic as possible. Cool. Well, I feel like we've taken enough of your time. Uh, Ilya, do you have any other questions before we go? Maddie, I don't, I, I don't recall. Do you have a, uh, an Instagram or Twitter? Where, where are you these days? Where can people find you if they, they want to track you down? I have an Instagram, Libatique, uh, at Libatique. That's it. I haven't really been on it lately. You know, I'm just, just like, I guess a lot of people just sort of go in and out of social media just because of the times, you know, but I, yeah. I'm, I'm Instagram is basically the only thing I do. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming back on the show. I'm, I'm your number one fan. I'll, I'll go see movies just because you shot them. So uh, it, it's, it's always exciting to get to talk to you. It's great talking to you guys. It's an awesome podcast. Congratulations on it. So I'm going strong. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Going strong because of people like you. Thanks for having me. Uh, good to see you guys. Yeah, thanks, Maddie. Great to see you. So that was Maddie Libatique coming back again. That was wonderful. I, I can't wait to see what he shoots next. I loved his insights into how he made the light outside change day to day and how it gets a little clearer every day and how at the beginning it's raining and stuff like that in a movie that's like so locked in one location, how he, without shooting tons of scenes outside the location, he kind of opened it up with lighting. Just, uh, the guy's brilliant. I love his work. Agreed. And now short ends. All right, Ben, it is our short end time of the show. Do you have an obsession this week? Something that you are all about? Something that uh, you'd like to share with our listeners? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I do. My, I'm going to call it obsession because I won't stop talking to anyone who will listen to me about it, is a thing you can get on HBO Max. It's an Adult Swim movie called Yule Log. So this is very uh, (laughs) awesome for... The holidays. Is it just the Yule log? Is it just the uh, fire in the the fireplace? That's no, it is not. Okay, all right. It starts as that. So it is written and directed by Casper Kelly, who you might remember from another Adult Swim thingamabob called Too Many Cooks. Oh, yes, I and I I know that you were obsessed with Too Many Cooks for years. Too many? Well, I don't know about years. (laughs) <laughs> I would call it years. You brought it up to me uh, over the course of many years. I I will not uh, pretend that I did not love Too Many Cooks. Too Many Cooks is pretty awesome. Yule Log is a movie, and it starts as a shot of the Yule Log. And I thought for a minute that they were going to tell an entire off-screen story with the Yule, just the shot of the Yule Log. But it, it, it sort of becomes about the guy who's filming the Yule Log, and they zoom out. And then at a certain point in the movie... They just start making a movie. And I don't know how um, justified that change is. It is kind of a change in tone. But if you've read the Blake Snyder book, Save the Cat. Sure. One of the things he warns writers about is a thing called double mumbo jumbo, which is like, hey, it's about vampire mobsters on the moon. It's like, nope, pick one lane and go with it. This movie has like 17 lanes that it's constantly in the whole time. But so, they managed to so it's kind vampire of pay off. mobsters on the moon who are also Nazis. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, and and they're and and they're doing a heist. Um, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And a prison so, break. so there's like I I can't even really begin to describe it. But the main two characters are like a biracial couple, which it is important that they're biracial, a uh, white man and a black woman, and he's there to propose to her, and he's the one filming the log. And then multiple people have the same Airbnb. So these other people come by and crash mm. and they're, and, and you, you're wondering what's going on. There's some, there's some weird shit going on in this movie that you will not know as, as a viewer, 
it's not playing by the rules that every other movie is playing by so strongly that as a viewer, my ability to guess what they're about to do next goes away. Hmm. Like after a while, I'm like, I have no idea what the hell you people are doing. I was wrapped and entertained. I got to say, it, that the, is the most wonderful thing in anything. I mean, for me, oh, like if I'm, for sure. if I'm watching a movie and I have no idea what's going to happen next, that is the most exciting, most wonderful time because I, I maybe I've just seen too much stuff, too old, too jaded. Sure. But when I have that moment in a movie where I don't know, really have no idea, that's like, that's edge of my seat. That's brilliant. And you're telling me that, yeah. that this movie does that. It totally does that. And it does it. I mean, here's the thing. Like you'll, yes. Like you'll read scripts that don't know how to play by the rules and they suck because they don't, they don't know what the rules are. Yeah. They don't know how to. Yeah. Like I honestly don't know anything about Casper Kelly except too many cooks and some of his other work on adult swim. But it's like, I was never bored. I was never not hooked. There were a couple of times where I'm like, oh, that was like a, a throwaway joke. It's not going to pay off or that's a moment that's not going to come back. And then it all comes back. It might be my favorite movie I've watched over the holidays. I've watched several movies since I was here in Ohio. And it's definitely, there's nothing like it. And at a certain point, it does kind of devolve. I won't say devolve. It evolves into something that feels a lot like a regular horror movie. It doesn't feel cheap or gimmicky? No, 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 no. I couldn't stop watching it. I I thought it was brilliant. And it really is interesting because I do feel like we're so inured to the structure of movies. And it's something I talk to other screenwriters and stuff about all the time. Like as an audience, we can feel that beat coming. And this, I would be interested to see a breakdown of it. Like I, I, maybe I should watch it again just for that. Hmm. So I'm going to stop waxing this car, but it's definitely an amazing film. And I I can't recommend it highly enough. And I want to say it was Graham Skipper who recommended it. All right. Well, uh, I'll check out Yule Log. Uh, I, I too, have uh, decided to take the cyclone bomb winter that was here as a sign that I should be watching way more movies. And, of course, it's screener season, so, like, screeners just keep keep arriving like crazy. But uh, I have to say that as I've been going through uh, all these movies, and I keep coming back to something I watched a couple of weeks ago, and I don't think there's anything that I've seen that is more fun than the unbearable weight of massive talent. It's pretty great. The unbearable weight of massive talent completely, I feel like, is being overlooked. I haven't seen anything about screenings for Academy members or anything about uh, promoting it for the Oscars. And I feel like that's a total shame because in my conversations with people right now who are looking at a bunch of things, I mean, it came out this year and it is so much fun. It is a fun movie from beginning to end. And People can't really tell you about this movie without giving it away. You know that what you do know is that Nicolas Cage is Nick Cage. It says it right on on the poster. And uh, Pedro Pascal is wonderful in it. And in some ways, it is a love letter to movies. And, you know, the the people who are in it, uh, I mean, the characters as they're written are huge movie fans. and They're constantly talking about movies and the movie process and getting a movie made and, you know, uh, sort of the, the realities of uh, you know, sort of lunacy that is the studio system. And, and I know that you yourself have a uh, aversion to movies that are too self-reflective or too much about the industry or too I, much. I have an aversion to, to hear. I just want to clear this up a little bit because it's like movies that are about, about the movie business sometimes turn me off and it's a specific flavor of it. And a lot of times it's like, 
an indie film by someone who's 22 years old. That's and right. They got All enough, their life experiences some, being sunk yeah, into they, this indie film. Yes. About and an they indie scored film. a million dollars or they scored 200 K to make their first movie. And they make a movie about someone making a movie. And I'm like, fuck you make a movie. Go tell a story about, go, go get kidnapped or something and have a real story happen to you. And then tell that story. Like, why are you telling me the story of what you think making a movie is like? All right. And, all right. and to me, it's a repetitive thing, but, but this movie is different movies like this and the player and Babylon and the big picture. There's a number of movies about me, even living in oblivion. I'm not wild about living in oblivion, but uh, living in but oblivion has, I, has enough positives. I think to outweigh your negatives. For sure. I, I agree. And I think I've come around a little bit on that and I'll, I'll let you finish. But like, I feel like Babylon's getting a terrible rap right now. And, and it's frustrating because I think Babylon is a movie that people would like if they gave it a chance. It's not Babylon's fault that it came out the same week as another three hour movie that everyone wants to see. Uh, you know, if I have to go to the theater to watch uh, one of those two movies, Babylon will get my 1799 or whatever it is now. But yeah, rather than the other one, which. I know everyone says you should go see Avatar on a big screen. I'm totally going to go see Avatar. I I mean, like, you can't stop me. I just haven't had a chance because I've been stuck in Ohio in a bomb cyclone. Okay. Okay. Well, the unbearable weight of massive talent. If you have missed this, which I had missed it all the way up until a couple of weeks ago, do not miss it. This is I'm going to say that it should be in on the short list for a lot of people for Oscar consideration, including for Nick Cage, who's just spectacular in this movie, especially for Nick Cage. My God, has that guy been in the cold for long enough? He should have been nominated last year for Pig. And and you're right. I'm not seeing any uh, Oscar campaign Nothing. for this movie. Nothing. And, and I, I'm not telling people who don't like it that they should like it. Like, like whatever you're going to like. Who gives a crap? But I do think that there's like this weird belief that movies that win Oscars should be like a collaboration between Broccoli and Homework. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and involve Nazis. <laughs> Or yeah, slavery. And, and, it, or, and it's yeah. like I'm still uh, pushing hard for everything everywhere all at once. I hope it gets nominated for everything because it's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I could see this movie definitely at least getting noms for like Nick Cage and for maybe the director, maybe pa- Pedro Pascal, because it is kind of a ballsy movie and it's just slightly more pulpy than being John Malkovich, which although I don't think it won any Oscars was certainly a movie that was chattered about as an Oscar movie in 1999. That That's entirely true. This movie should be, I agree with you. I think it's, it's a phenomenal movie. And Nick Cage proves to me again, just, you know, I, I think Nick Cage has always been a pretty cool actor. Some of his more portentous work, like Leaving Las Vegas, Not My Speed. But go watch like uh, Face Off and tell me as silly and absurd as that movie is. Tell me that you're not entertained as all hell while watching it. Nicolas Cage is, I think, just an unheralded genius. And I love how he pops up these days now in things you don't expect. Like I loved I loved it when he appeared in Kick-Ass. Like I don't he wasn't on the poster. I don't remember anything about like him being in that. And then suddenly, voila, these here days, he is. Kick-Ass was like 12 years ago. But yeah. I, OK, OK, well, uh, excuse me. I was I said, OK, uh, anyway. Unbearable weight of massive talent. Go see it. It's wonderful. Uh, Ben, where can people find you? They want to track you down. Please find me at benrock.com. You can uh, find uh, me and all uh, the Ben Rock related information that you've ever wanted. Also, uh, still go to Audible. If you're an Audible subscriber, go check out Catchers, my my new narrative uh, series that I co-wrote and executive produced with Bob DeRosa and I directed it, uh, starring Billy Gardell and Horizon Guardiola, David Patrick Kelly, uh, 
an amazing cast. Please go check that out. And hey, if you don't want to pay for Audible, you can get a free 30-day trial. And if you don't want that, direct message me on Twitter and I, I will help you get a code to listen to it for free. How's that? Can't make it any easier than that. That's pretty awesome. Uh, so find me there. I'm at Neptune Salad on Twitter still for the time being. I don't know how long I'm going to be on Twitter. Uh, and uh, yeah, Mastodon. Check me out on Mastodon. I'm all over the goddamn place. How about you, Ilya? Where can people find you? You can find me at Hot Red Cameras. Hotredcameras.com is the, the website. And, uh, you know, I'm one of three Ilya Friedmans out there, but good chance you'll find me. There's two other Ilya Friedmans? Yeah, on LinkedIn, there's like two others. But regardless, Man, you'll, you'll, you, guys should have a, you should all have a lunch or we something. We should have a party. I know. They're, they're on the East Coast. There's, though, a, so. there's several Ben Rocks, by the way. I, I befriended one of them on Twitter. All right, Ben, let's thank some people. Who do we have to thank this week? Uh, let's thank Alana Cody for kicking all the ass and getting us all these amazing interviews. We've been uh, really swimming in uh, a lot of Oscar people and it's intimidating and fun. You know, like we get to talk to some major people and we have uh, one of our bucket list ones coming up in an interview with someone who we've always wanted to have on the show and haven't had yet. So uh, cross your fingers that that all goes through. Uh, we should also thank Ben Katz, who edits this. And uh, I'm not making his life any easier with my very jury-rigged setup from uh, Dayton, Ohio. Not my professional setup from Los Angeles. And uh, last but never least, we should thank uh, Kay's Alitrachi. And I, I would point out that uh, I told Kay's to check out Yule Log. Uh, Kay's and I, eh, I'd say maybe we agree like a third of the time, maybe two thirds. He loved Yule Log just as much as I did. So that's a big endorsement right there. And Ilya, if you like it as much as I did, that's like bulletproof. Everyone should have, should be like clockwork oranged into a chair and forced to watch it. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, Kay Zalatrachi, who uh, composed every scrap of music you heard on this episode, check him out at musicbykays.com. Send him some message for God's sake. Somebody just say anything to him, literally anything. Holy Christ. Just say something to Kay's. Uh, actually, don't reach out to Kay's. I'm going to go with the, I'm going to go with the neg here on this. I'm going to say opposite. Don't, don't, don't reach out oh, to Kay's. Man. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't. Uh, well, maybe, maybe reverse psychology, reverse psychology works on my son sometimes. So maybe that's a good idea. Uh, all right. So uh, Ben, I think that's just about it for this episode. Uh, take us out. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.